I'm Kara Miller. This week on Innovation Hub, don't underestimate the thorny issues that arise when tech connects people with people. I don't think Washington has fully woken up to the problems that have been created by the emergence of these network platforms as the dominant sphere for public discussion of politics in America today. Then what's stopping you from running faster? It might be your mind. You're giving it everything, as far as you know, in a marathon or in these other contexts. But everything is a subjective construct, and there is a little bit more of a physiological reserve that you can access when the stakes are high enough. Plus, should doctors start prescribing walks in the woods? So among the things you see are a a reduction in stress hormones being released from the brain. So, for example, cortisol levels go down. Blood pressure goes down. That's all coming up on Innovation Hub. Welcome to Innovation Hub, I'm Kara Miller. Just about 500 years ago, Martin Luther was upset about corruption in the church, and he laid out his concerns in what is often known as the 95 Theses. He may have also nailed them to a church door, that's how the legend goes. Now, you might assume that the Catholic Church would be angry, and you would be right. The church questioned Luther, they eventually excommunicated him, they branded him a heretic. But it was too late, according to historian Neil Ferguson. The printing press, which had taken off in the preceding decades, had already spread Luther's ideas. If all he'd had was uh, a pen, a piece of paper and a nail, and all he'd done was nail the 95 Theses to the church door, he would have been, I think, just another heretic burnt at the stake at some point. But the technology that Johannes Gutenberg had introduced was now incredibly popular. And Ferguson says that even an institution as powerful as the church couldn't do much about it. This was a fundamental transformation of the public sphere. And I think it's the key to understanding why the Reformation, which was really propelled by a social network of like-minded people, was unstoppable. No matter how hard the Roman Catholic Church and its supporters tried, they just could not kill the network. Notice Ferguson's term there, social network. In a new book, The Square and the Tower, he argues that a social network is a lot more than a movie. It's a force that has changed history by repeatedly giving power to all sorts of individuals, enlightened, evil, and everything in between. And social networks, which have always existed, have gotten supercharged when they were married to powerful technology like the printing press or the internet. And interestingly, every time they crop up, those network technologies have proved to have a lot in common. I think we're seeing the polarization that we saw after the printing press was introduced. We're seeing the crazy stuff going viral. We're also seeing that the small world effect, you know, the world appears to get smaller because networks reduce the distance between any two individuals. We're seeing the way in which networks constantly, they shapeshift. They're not stable entities, they're constantly changing. We see how networks can attack networks and we can see how networks increase rather than reduce inequality. These are my six laws of networks, if you like, based on network science. In the 500 years since the 95 Theses were written, regimes have risen and fallen, countries have disappeared, new countries have been created, but Protestantism is still hanging in there. 
Neil Ferguson is a fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford and a visiting professor at Tsinghua University in Beijing. And he notes that networks and hierarchies have battled for millennia. And our moment, like Luther's, is one in which technology has given networks a trump card. After all, consider the fact that our current president started his political climb with a huge advantage over everyone else in the primary. He had an enormous network of followers. The top-down, neatly structured Republican Party didn't really want him. But that didn't matter. What used to be a pretty hierarchical Republican Party where the decisions were made by the party and people like Jeb Bush were sort of ritually nominated and selected as candidates, that was all blown up by Trump, who essentially unleashed his own network, which was a quite different structure built up on reality TV and in, in business. And that really changed the whole architecture of Republican politics uh, in a way that I think we're still struggling to understand. My sense is when I go to Washington that the political class has only just begun to figure out what hit it back in November 2016. We'll talk more in a few minutes about how networks are changing our lives now. But first, back to the technology that foreshadowed this moment, the printing press. Printing turned out to be so powerful, it didn't just start a religious revolution. It sparked an enlightenment that enabled inventors and scientific pioneers and philosophers all over the world to learn about the work that other people were doing. It flooded communities with political pamphlets that sparked the American Revolution and the French Revolution. It changed how we made and sold goods and spread information about how to mechanize factories, the Industrial Revolution. But then, Ferguson says, the winds of technology shifted, and new inventions snatched power from people who were trying to network and handed it to autocrats and oligarchs. Networks started to wither, and hierarchies became emboldened. Railroads and telegraphs to begin with, then steamships, later telephones, and then finally wireless radio, the medium that you and I are now mm -hmm. communicating on. These technologies, unlike the printing press, lent themselves to central control. Mm. Johannes Gutenberg, who was the kind of inventor of the European printing press, couldn't control what he created. He did not become Bill Gates. In fact, he didn't make much money at all. Mm. And the ownership of printing was very decentralized. That wasn't true of these later technologies, railroads, telegraphs, etc., which in fact quite quickly came under central control and usually government control mm -hmm. in most countries. Uh, so I think that's something that explains why in the 19th and in most of the 20th century, it wasn't too hard uh, for centralised control to be imposed, often by authoritarian regimes. You can draw a line from Bonaparte, from Napoleon, all the way to Stalin, uh, showing that it became progressively easier for authoritarian hierarchical structures of power to use 19th century technology and essentially impose their control hmm. to the point that social networks they didn't control were illegal, which they were in the Soviet Union under Stalin. But the technology that had empowered Luther, that empowered Thomas Paine to say, you know, we, we should do something about this British government that's, it's, you know, that had really empowered the American Revolution in a lot of ways, that technology was still lying around in the 1800s and 1900s. So why were these centralized forces able to eclipse the people could still write pamphlets and distribute them? They did. And of course, uh, 
what's fascinating about the 19th century is this interplay between essentially conservative hierarchical structures and the would-be revolutionaries uh, who kept trying again and again to reenact what had begun in, in France in 1789 mm-hmm. and, and they failed. Mm-hmm. It's very difficult indeed to do a revolution if the government controls the railroads mm-hmm. and the telegraphs and the Bolsheviks knew that which is why they moved so quickly to control the central railroad hubs, Moscow and Petrograd. Once they controlled the railway network which was early on in the Russian Civil War, as well as the telegraph system, the attempts to dislodge them by white armies were doomed to fail. Hmm. So although the Bolsheviks had used those older technologies and used them pretty effectively, they knew that if they didn't get control of the more modern technologies of communication, namely railroads and telegraphs and telephones, though those weren't particularly widely distributed in Russia, they wouldn't be able to win. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Neil Ferguson, author of the book, The Square and the Tower, Networks and Power from the Freemasons to Facebook. So we talked at the beginning about Martin Luther, and you argue that somewhere around the 1970s, the world again shifted to being a more network place, sort of echoing what had happened with the printing press. What developments were happening around the 70s that made that happen? Two things, really. Uh, One, the uh, Department of Defense essentially let a bunch of scientists and researchers in California do whatever they damn well liked. Okay. <laughs> uh, and that that complete loss of central control, I think, explains why ARPANET was, was born, why mm. the, the experiment with the, uh, the original internet began. And at the same time, in the same neighborhood, uh, Northern California, a bunch of people started uh, building personal computers to mm-hmm. see if they could make the computer something that was uh, a readily accessible consumer good. And this combination of early internet and early personal computer is the beginning of a transformation that is ongoing to this day. And the original idea was, hey, we need a communication system that's sufficiently decentralized that if there's a nuclear strike, it won't completely collapse. Mm. Go figure it out. That's really the beginning of ARPANET. Mm. And it starts by being, you know, Stanford connecting to to UCLA and trying to send messages uh, uh, through through the system. Mm-hmm. And nobody's paying any attention to this in, in the Pentagon. They're, they're, they're busy losing the Vietnam War. So that's really what makes... I think that's what makes the internet happen because the Soviets had a similar plan and, and you can amusingly call it the internet. They start building a computer system which is supposed to kind of be the same. But of course, it's the Soviet Union. So there's central control. And at mm-hmm. some point, the Soviet ministry, just Soviet finance ministry just cuts off the money and the whole thing folds. So I think this is a real turning point in our history comparable with the printing press in Europe. Mm. From the 1970s onwards, Number one, it gets steadily harder for the president of the United States to exert the kind of control that had been possible in the 1950s and 60s. I mean, it's just gone by the by the end of the 1970s. Uh, it's becoming harder and harder for an imperial presidency to be credible. That's not the internet. That's just the media. That's just the newspapers uh, destroying Nixon and proceeding right. to, to undermine Carter. And I think the internet takes its leap forward from that moment of disruption of hierarchical power that I think was central to the 1970s. Hmm. Um, So I want to jump ahead to our current moment. 
Um, one of the things that you write is that, that that technology that got going in the 70s really began to change U.S. politics in a big way in like just about the last decade or so. Um, and President Trump is a great example of that change because this is a guy who capitalized on a pre-existing network, right? He'd been an entertainment star, and then he had a campaign apparatus that understood that um, these targeted Facebook advertisements, they were cheap, they were effective. Um, But it seems to me, uh, and you touched on this before, that the Trump story is bigger than right versus left. It's more like Republican versus insurgent. You have to feel sorry for political scientists. They'd worked out this whole story. The party decides it's all prearranged and therefore collectively missed Trump as a phenomenon because they had just assumed the rules hadn't changed. But the rules had completely changed. Uh, The Trump network had begun disrupting the Republican hierarchy uh, using a curious mixture of cable TV and social media. And there was a feedback loop where shows that featured Trump would find their social media hits would surge. So they would feature Trump some more. Morning Joe was a good example of this, the the show on TV that he uh, watches and regularly appeared on. So I think uh, what Trump brought to the the contest for the Republican nomination was a pre-existing large followership on social media that he'd built up over the years as a reality TV personality. And he unleashed that against a completely unprepared Republican establishment who didn't know what hit them. I mean, they didn't realize that that just calling Jeb Bush low energy on Twitter was enough to destroy him, mm. no matter what the party hierarchy tried to do. But I, I think there's a lot of kind of slightly nerdy research going on at the moment. You know, did cable TV matter more than social media, which misses out the feedback loop? What perhaps the academics don't see is the way in which TV producers were watching their social media numbers. And that was part of what made them keep huh. giving Trump free airtime. It's well known that he got a ton of free airtime. But what was driving that, I think, was his existing mastery of of Twitter as a way of generating news about him and then views of, of the shows that he appeared on. So let's talk about um, networks on the other side, which certainly exists now in the age of Trump. You think about like the Women's March that of 2017 and 2018, both huge, huge marches, things that people connected to through Twitter, through Facebook, you know, all these different ways of connecting now that didn't exist essentially 20, 30 years ago. What do you make of the other side of this, the, the network that has arisen in response to the, the Trump network? I think it's extremely important to realize that two, indeed many more than two, can play at this game. Mm. And if the Republicans around Trump, uh, the populists perhaps better described, got Facebook and understood Twitter and and were able to edge ahead of of Hillary Clinton's campaign, it is perfectly possible that the next generation of Democratic leaders and indeed Democratic activists will be able to do something similar and outdo uh, Trump on social media. That is the potential that exists in the Women's March, uh, in the so-called resistance. It is visible in the energizing of the democratic base uh, that we are seeing in a bunch of different metrics. So potentially, we find ourselves in the midst of a backlash that could conceivably deliver the House to the Democrats this coming November. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, Uh, I think it's important to recognise that a lot could go wrong with that strategy. 
Just getting people out in the street in large numbers is not a victory in its own right. Mm -hmm. And so you can't at this point simply rule out the Republicans hanging on to the House. You can't even rule out a Trump re-election uh, because I think it's too early to proclaim success in playing his game and, mm -hmm. as it were, catching up in the social media arms race. I don't think the Democrats have done that yet. What lessons do you think modern social networks like Facebook and Twitter can learn from the social networks of the past? Lesson number one, which I think is not being learned, is that you're not going to create a happy, clappy global community by just connecting everybody. The reality is that even relatively small social networks will tend to polarize. There's plenty of sociological research on that. And the polarization that we see today online, on Facebook, on Twitter and elsewhere, is a real problem. And the network platforms contribute to it. The way the algorithms are configured, there are incentives on Facebook and Twitter to post extreme content and fake news. Hmm. If you don't do something about that, I think very quickly... The backlash, which you can already see against Facebook and Twitter, is going to gather momentum. Uh, it's very interesting that they're now the least popular of the big technology companies, substantially behind uh, Amazon, mm. uh, which has done a much better job of, of public relations mm. than Apple. So I think that there's a major issue here. And I still sense uh, that they're underestimating it because the response to all the crisis since the election has essentially been, we'll tweak the news feed and hire some content moderators. If you think 10,000 people on relatively low pay can monitor the billions of posts that appear on Facebook in any year, you are dreaming. Mm. So I think there's, there's this kind of fantasy that self-regulation will do if we just tweak the algorithm and hire some, some content monitors. And that fantasy he could be blown up. The minute Washington really wakes up to the threat posed by the social network platforms to the functioning of our democracy, and although there's been a great deal of discussion in the last 12 months, I don't think Washington has fully woken up mm. to the problems that have been created by the emergence of these network platforms as the dominant sphere for public discussion of politics in America right. today. When you look out, you know, 10 years, 20 years, do you feel like we are headed back towards hierarchy? Are we headed more towards this kind of decentralized network? Like, do you feel like there's a, you know, a trajectory in history right now? Just a few years ago, it seemed as if the proliferation of, uh, of network platforms through the Internet would spread democracy mm -hmm. as far and wide as possible. Yeah. The Arab dictators would go. And, and if the Chinese tried to censor the internet, they'd be trying to nail jello to a wall, Bill Clinton's famous line. Right. Well, it looks a lot different now. Mm -hmm. I mean, certainly authoritarian regimes, not least Russia's, have figured out how to use social media to their own advantage. And I think more, most impressively of all, the Chinese Communist Party has established an extraordinary relationship with the big Chinese technology companies, Baidu Alibaba Tencent, that essentially means that the big data of Chinese citizens is available on demand to Xi Jinping. Mm. That does not look like good news for uh, liberal democracy. So I think that uh, we are now beginning to see that at best, these technologies are a double-edged sword as far as politics is concerned. At worst, they may be a boon, uh, not just to authoritarians, but to totalitarians. Mm. 
Neil Ferguson is a fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford and a visiting professor at Tsinghua University in Beijing. He is also the author, most recently, of The Square and the Tower, Networks and Power from the Freemasons to Facebook. Neil, thank you so much. Thank you, Kara. One more note before we go on the social network spawned by Martin Luther in the early 1500s. The 95 Theses were originally printed in Latin, which was the scholarly and religious language of the time. But Luther's message, which spread like wildfire through Germany and then through much of Europe, really got traction when it was printed in German, the language of ordinary people, not kings or popes. We've got more on our website about how networks have changed the world, including an interview about the history and psychology of conspiracy theories. That's at innovationhub.org. During the Depression, lots of Americans began working on infrastructure projects. But one of those projects turned out to be particularly deadly. It was the Hoover Dam in the Mojave Desert, and in 1931 alone, 13 men died working on it. Not surprisingly, what they died from, considering they were working long hours in the middle of the desert, was heat exhaustion, which was when David Dill, who ran a lab studying fatigue, visited the site of the Hoover Dam. He and his colleagues requested that a sign be posted in the dining hall so everybody could see it. The year after the sign was posted, no one died from heat exhaustion. No one died the next year either, or the next. So what did the sign say that turned the tide? It said, drink plenty of water and put plenty of salt on your food. Dill's work was part of a major scientific push to understand the limits of human endurance and to extend those limits. Fundamentally, I mean, to put it in brutal terms, they wanted to squeeze more labor out of the average laborer. Because back then, most people were working in physical tasks, not in, you know, it was was the mirror image of today when we're all sitting at our desks thinking, how can I squeeze in 30 minutes of actually not sitting down? Alex Hutchinson is a columnist for Outside Magazine and the author of Endure, Mind, Body, and the Curiously Elastic Limits of Human Performance. People were tired and fatigued by the end of the day, and, and there was this idea of, can we just find the magic formula to squeeze more work out of people? Or do we need to build in things like, you know, weekends and, and inconvenient and, and money-wasting things like, like limiting work hours to 12 hours and things like that? That push to understand endurance has now been going on for over 100 years, and it has consumed everyone from the military to Olympic athletes. But in the last couple of decades, that research on endurance, the research that taught us to think of the human body as a machine that does need to be hydrated and fueled upright, that's now taken a turn. So things like hydration, things like by the time you're thirsty, it's too late, you're dehydrated, you need to be avoid any more than 2% dehydration. A lot of these rules of thumb that we've absorbed and grown up with came from that research. And there's been a, finally, there's been a little bit of pushback saying, actually, Human limits are a little bit more elastic, maybe, than what those initial studies thought. Hutchinson says that what scientists are zeroing in on is the question of what's happening in our brains when we're doing something hard, and is there a clear limit to what we can handle, either athletic or otherwise? In essence, how much of this is in our heads? So, you know, if you go to sixth grade gym class and say, everyone run a mile and everyone runs the same pace. right, right. For some people, it's going to feel really easy. They're, mm-hmm. they're gifted with a physiology that makes running at that level really easy. Mm. But once you start saying, 
let's have everyone push to their own physical limits, then that's a learned skill. Huh. Nobody is born being able to push themselves to their limits. So athletes who've been training for many years, they have learned to suffer. <laughs> they've altered their bodies for, for sure, huh. but they've also altered how close they are, how long they're able to hold their finger in that flame. I and see. so th there's a bunch of research showing that Athletes feel pain the same as all the rest of us. They right. don't have any dulled sense of pain, but they're right. just willing to tolerate it for longer. Interesting. Um, you know, one of the places that you write about where mental toughness really comes into play is in the realm of breaking records. And there's this very famous record that was broken in the 1950s uh, by a runner named Roger Bannister. He broke the four-minute mile. And people had thought up to that time, humans cannot run a mile faster than four minutes. It's not a possibility. I am guessing that that breaking of the record reset sort of every runner's mental view as to like, whoa, this actually is doable. Like maybe I could do it. I, I think it definitely did. Now, that message gets, you know, when, when I was researching the book just for fun, I, I sort of did some searching through the self-help literature and the, the Bannister story gets told and retold and it gets told with uh, total fabrication saying, oh, you know, <laughs> after Bannister broke it, 300 people broke it in the next year. And, you know, soon babies were, you know, wheeling their own strollers around the track <laughs> in, in, in four minute miles. It's amazing. It, yeah. It's still, you know, actually just in January, the 500th American broke, ran a sub four minute mile. So 500 okay. Americans in history have done it. It's still something that is basically more unusual than climbing Mount Everest. Okay. But humans have been around for whatever, millions of years. Mm. Uh, Bannister did it. The second guy who did it did it three weeks later, wow, and four other people fast. did it in the in the next year. Okay. And it, so it soon became something that someone did every year. And right. these days, you know, high schoolers do it. So, yes, there's advances in training and there were changes, but there there was definitely a mental element there. Mm -hmm. You tell a story of yourself. You are a runner too, and this time when I think you were in college. And you were running around a track and you went faster than you had ever imagined. Like everybody has their own, you know, limits, which they run within and they can feel like it's hard to, you know, break through. But you did. You want to talk about that? Yeah. In a way, this is the origin of this whole book. This is the, the mystery moment. I was a competitive runner. And so I'd been trying to break four minutes for 1500 meters, which is a little bit shorter than a mile. And I'd been stuck at 401 or 402 for about four years. So I really had the sense that I was approaching my physical limits. And I thought, mm. if I just get the perfect race, I can run 359.99. And then I'll know that I did everything I can. But what happened is I was running this low-key race. And the, the timekeeper, when you're running a track race, will call out your time each lap to let you know how you're doing. Okay. And in this case, for reasons that aren't clear, uh, whether he started his watch at the wrong time or whatever, he I, I got totally misleading splits that made me believe I was running the race of my life without any increase in effort. And so by about halfway through the race, I just thought, stop listening to the splits. This is your moment, Alex. Run. <laughs> and, 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 and it turned out that he was totally wrong. I had been running quite normal splits, but because I believed I was running so fast, I sort of unshackled myself from all these self-limitations and expectations. And I ended up running 352, which was a nine-second personal best after four years of no improvements. And then what happened after that was what really blew my mind is that in my next race, I ran 349, so another three seconds faster. Whoa. And then my race after that, I ran 344 and qualified for the Olympic trials. So something had switched in my mind just right. by being deceived. I had, <laughs> I had changed. So, so from then on, I could never fully believe the kind of human body as a machine picture of, of human limits. 
You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Alex Hutchinson, the author of Endure, Mind, Body, and the Curiously Elastic Limits of Human Performance. One of the um, really interesting things about the kind of how the mind-body connection here is um, that economists have taken millions, I think, of uh, times of people running marathons and looked and crunched the numbers on those times. And you would think, you know, if you've ever watched a marathon on television, the New York Marathon, the Boston Marathon, whatever, you see people coming, obviously, in waves across the finish line for hours and hours and hours they come across. But interestingly, there is a huge spike up right before every hour mark. So that even though people are fatigued, it seems like they're saying to themselves, I don't care. I know I can't take much more. I got to get in under the five hour mark, under the six hour mark, whatever it is. Yeah. It's, and what's amazing is if you really parse the data, you can see, OK, this, there's the same pattern, but a little smaller for the half hour marks. Really? And the same pattern, but even a little smaller for the 10 minute marks. Really? Okay. So I don't know why, but we care about round numbers. And it changes our motivation and it changes our conception of what's worthwhile and how, how deep we can dig. And the, the thing for me is that if you talk to someone who just ran a 403 marathon mm-hmm. and you ask them if they were trying hard at the end, they're going to say, darn right I was trying hard at the end. I was giving everything I could. So th- it's not a subjective difference where they're like, well, I'm just going to jog it in. It's something changes in your perception of the effort when you have when, – when there's some incentive like that, you discover that, oh, actually – there was another gear, but my brain was hiding it from me unless it became really, really important to access that extra reserve. Have scientists looked at what your body does in that last few minutes when you're like, I got to make it in under four hours. I got to make it in under five hours. And when you say you give it everything at the end, I mean, presumably you're running a marathon. You're pretty much giving it everything, you know, for 26 miles. So like what happens in that last push to, as you say, uh, very often try to make it in under a round number when lots more people cross the finish line than they do after the round number. Well, so here's a sort of comparable example. There is a really interesting study uh, looking at cyclists in a heat chamber, asking them to go as hard as they could. Okay. And when you're exercising in hot weather, one of the key limiting factors is your core temperature. It reaches a certain point and you just can't push it any farther. And that's what kind of is your ceiling. Right. But they gave these cyclists two weeks of training in, in motivational self-talk. So learning to replace, you know, in the middle of their cycling, rather than having the words, you know, it is so hot in here, I'm burning up, echoing in their head, learning to sort of tamp that down and say, you're ready for this. You can do this. Keep going. Mm-hmm. And what they found is, yes, their performance improved. They, they were able to increase their, their time to exhaustion. But they also found that they were able to push their core temperatures about half a degree higher by the end of, the, mm-hmm. of, the, of that test. So what it mm-hmm. says is, Yes, you're, you're giving it everything as far yeah. as you know in a marathon or in these other contexts, sure. but everything is a subjective construct and there is a little bit more of a physiological reserve that you can access for better or worse uh, when the stakes are high enough. Hmm. Do you think that elite athletes, Olympic athletes, their trainers, do they take this kind of motivational self-talk seriously? Do you think they re- subscribe to it? I just wonder to what degree they care about this or may, or other pieces of the science of endurance. Yeah, honestly, I, I think there's a kind of a, a linearly increasing relationship that the higher the level you get in sport, 
uh, the more likely you are to find that someone's working with a sports psychologist or or, or mm. really paying attention to this stuff. And, and you know, when I was a, a college track athlete, we had a sports psychologist working with our team, and we thought it was just the greatest joke ever. We just laughed and laughed at all the silly little things right. they, they told right. us about self-talk. We did. Right. We just thought, you know, hey, take care of my VO2 max, take care of my muscles, and I, I don't right. need to worry about having a mantra to say. Well, because you thought th- these are bodies we're talking about. There are hard and fast rules here, and, like, you can tell yourself whatever you want, but it doesn't make it true. Yeah, that's, I mean, exactly. You, and, and, of course, there's there's some truth to that. Like, it doesn't matter how strong my mind is. I'm not going to go out and, and win the Tour de France this summer or right. anything like that. So the, the, <laughs> right. there are limits. So it's it's more right. a question of when you're getting about getting the most out of yourself rather than allowing yourself to sort of suddenly become Superman. And I, I think it's a growing trend. Like, I think there's more and more realization with every year that you're, you're leaving seconds on the table or you're leaving points on the table if you're not doing something to try and optimize your mental game. Now, I don't think anyone knows the definitive right way to maximize the mental part of, of, of sport, but everyone knows it's important now. I wonder for people who are not elite athletes and who like, you know, they go to the gym, they do a few reps of this or that, what they can learn in terms of thinking about this science and endurance and what an individual can endure. Because even if you're, you know, not a great athlete, you are thinking all the time about like, can I handle, you know, 10 more minutes on this machine or can I do a few more reps or whatever? Can I do that? And will I be okay? Is it okay to keep pushing? Just talk about like what somebody who's very uh, sort of run of the mill um, uh, athlete in the afternoons or whatever can learn about this. Yeah. You know, honestly, I think that the takeaways are actually much more powerful for the rest of us than they are for elite athletes. Mm. So I think there's a really important lesson to learn about the difference between yellow lights and red lights, like the feeling of discomfort and actually encountering a limit. And I think for a lot of us, we we tend to conflate the two to think that if I'm panting really heavily, it means that my body doesn't have enough oxygen or that if my legs hurt, it means I better stop. Whereas we tend to have a lot of leeway between when the warning sign starts and when we actually hit a limit. And most of us will never actually be able to push to a limit. And I think understanding that is something that can be really helpful in the context of if you're at the gym and you're you're feeling like it hurts. I, I, I'm not I'm not trying to send everyone off to go hurt themselves right. by, by, by <laughs> injury, but 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 just to understand that the feeling that it's hard is a feeling, and getting comfortable with that feeling will allow you to tolerate it for a little mm. bit longer. We have talked about um, breaking the four minute mile. I wonder if you think we're getting close to the limits of what humans can do and like what the human machine is is actually capable of, um, or, or are we never going to be at that point? Yeah, you know that's a great question to argue about on a on a two hour run. It, it's, uh, <laughs> it's 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 if you no... have any breath left on that run, I, you wouldn't want to argue with me on that run about it. <laughs> yeah. So one thing I'll say is, okay, we're definitely in. Uh, at a point of diminishing returns, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's not like 100 years ago where someone could come and break the marathon record by 10 minutes or whatever. But what's interesting is that if you look at the the, the records in things like horse racing and dog racing, mm-hmm. where there's there's lots of money at stake because of the betting. So people are very serious about getting faster. Okay. But the records have kind of stagnated since the 1950s. Mm-hmm. Uh, w- once you got to the 1950s, like anything we've learned since then about hydration and nutrition and stuff hasn't really you know, allowed horses and dogs to get faster. The mm-hmm. Secretariat still holds the Kentucky Derby record right. from 1972. Interesting. Humans, on the other hand, have continued to steadily get faster in every event. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't think it's because they're using different or better training or nutrition. I think that's a function of the brain that 
you know, it comes back to this importance of, of belief. And for a human, you know that if someone has run a marathon in two hours, zero minutes, and 25 seconds, you know that it's not impossible to run two minutes, zero hours, and 24 seconds. Right. And you could set your benchmark based on what others have done. You can stand on the shoulders of, of the, those who've come before you. Whereas for a horse, it's always the first time they've encountered this situation. Right. They're never thinking about how fast Secretariat went. Alex Hutchinson is a columnist for Outside Magazine. He's the author of Endure, Mind, Body, and the Curiously Elastic Limits of Human Performance. Alex, thank you so much. Thanks, Kara. It's been a lot of fun. The modern version of the four-minute mile just might be the two-hour marathon. And the shoe company Nike has spent a lot of money trying to help elite marathoners break two hours. Hutchinson wrote about their efforts in the New York Times. We're going to have a link to his piece on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash innovationhubradio. If you were on the hunt for an expensive house, a very expensive house, where would you look? So it depends on where you are. But if you're in New York, you might want to try the streets that ring Central Park. If you're in Chicago, you could try Lakeshore Drive, which is right next to Lake Michigan. You could try the leafy sections of Beverly Hills, the beaches of Malibu. What all those places, places where you can easily find homes that top 5 or $10 million, what they all have in common is that they're close to nature, even if they're in these huge urban areas. But what's the draw? Why is it so desirable to be right next to natural environments, especially if those environments are perceived as scarce? Is nature good for us in ways that we've priced into real estate, but we haven't really talked much about in terms of health? Florence Williams argues that it is. She's a contributing editor at Outside Magazine and author of the book, The Nature Fix, Why Nature Makes Us Happier, Healthier, and More Creative. Florence, thanks for your time. Hi, Kara. It's good to be here. So when you think about how prized nature is in urban areas, like this idea of it's being really expensive, right, to live next to a place like Central Park, do you feel like even before the data was in, we've been sort of subconsciously pricing in a kind of intrinsic advantage to nature? I think that's exactly right. You know, it's it's also like that eighth hole on the golf course. Yeah. <laughs> we we know we want to look out at pastures or trees or oceans or some kind of wide open spaces. We know that these make us feel like we can take a deep breath. You know, we they they bring us some peace, some measure of peace in a chaotic world. How do you define nature? Oh, that's a great question. Uh, I actually like Oscar Wilde's very generous definition, which is nature is just a place where birds fly around uncooked. <laughs> <laughs> well, be careful, because that's the subway station in Boston. But yeah, <laughs> that's true. But I, I think the point is that it doesn't have to be truly spectacular. You know, it doesn't have to be a wilderness. We can still get a lot of the benefits of nature from hanging out, uh, you know, in the backyard or even having a big, beautiful tree out our window. Um, as long as we notice that they're there and, and pay a little bit of attention, we can kind of cultivate the awe that we feel in nature. So give me a sense in terms of how nature affects brains, what scientists have found so far and um, sort of where the research is pointing them. 
Yeah, there's been a lot of investigation of kind of how these different landscapes affect our our physiology. You know, what measures can you see? Mm. You know, what does our nervous system look like uh, in nature (laughs) as as opposed to in the middle of a city? And the results are pretty interesting. I first went to Japan to do this investigation because I heard that there were scientists there taking measures of people's nervous systems even after just 15 minutes of subjects being in a forest. Uh, You can see changes in their brains and in their bodies. Um, So among the things you see are a a reduction in stress hormones being released from from the brain. So, for example, cortisol levels go down. Blood pressure goes down. And this is nothing else but like taking a walk in the woods, essentially. Right. This is just hanging out in the woods. You know, it's not even an exercise effect, which you might expect to see people feeling better after exercise. And they know this because they also send groups of subjects to kind of walk slowly, stroll around a city, Hmm. uh, a city center, and also to stroll around this forest landscape. Uh, and, and so only in the forest people, <laughs> I'll call them forest people, um, did they see some of these effects. So those also include a change in mood. People reported feeling happier, feeling more vital. And also their negative feelings went down. So feelings mm-hmm. of things like frustration or anger, those feelings went down. Do you think that the medical establishment, uh, doctors, are aware of these findings? Because, I mean, so much money is spent on depression medication, blood pressure medication. And if people knew that walking in the forest for 15 minutes or 30 minutes would help your blood pressure go down, I imagine there's lots of both patients and doctors who would be really interested in that information. I have to say, for the most part, I think the medical establishment has no clue. <laughs> I think it, this is not something that's taught in medical school. Mm-hmm. And and I think it's an example of how cut off most of us are from nature, that our doctors really don't experience a lot of nature themselves. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so they don't even know, you know, that it makes them feel good necessarily. Yeah, but you don't um, have to experience nature to have read a study showing that people walking in the forest have lower blood pressure after 15 minutes than people walking through the concrete jungle. Right. I mean, right? And if all you want to do is just get your patients to be healthier, well, there's maybe an an answer right there. Well, I think what's happened so far is that a lot of these studies are still pretty small. So small levels of subjects. Mm -hmm. um, A lot of the research is being done in other countries. So that's another piece. And I think that you know, we live in such an evidence-based society mm. that for this to really be taught in medical schools, I think we need to reach a whole new level uh, of the research. So we need much larger clinical trials. We need, you know, case control studies. Um, I think we're starting to see some more of this happen, but I think it still has a ways to go. Hmm. Do you see interest from any other parties that might be unexpected? Um, insurance companies obviously have a have a real interest in making Uh, people healthier because then they're cheaper to insure, right, if they don't have really serious chronic problems. Um, Do you think there's, you know, you said, obviously, we've got no pharmaceutical lobbying group for walks in the woods, nobody who necessarily would want to bankroll that study. But could there be interest from uh, groups that we might not expect? Yeah, absolutely. And I don't want to suggest there are no doctors interested in this. Um, There actually is a Parks prescription program underway. It's kind of a partnership uh, with the CDC uh, and a number of doctor offices and hospitals across the country. I think now there are 35 
uh, medical practices that are experimenting with prescribing parks to their patients. So there is a little bit starting to happen. We also do see it in some unexpected places. For example, prisons. Um, There are a couple of pilot projects Mm -hmm. underway where nature videos are being piped into the exercise rooms of some prisons out west. And these are being studied. Uh, And what they're finding is that among prisoners who are working out in the rooms with the nature videos compared to working out in rooms with no videos, the inmates are less aggressive, they're calmer, uh, and some of them are requesting to go in there, um, you know, when they're Mm. stressed out, which is pretty. So now the guards are not only, you know, supporting this idea, but the guards are asking for these nature videos to be played in their break rooms because they need a break from the stress. It's interesting, too, that the effect of nature changes the way your body functions or the way you feel seems to be true even by video. I mean, you're not talking about people taking walks in the woods here, the actual woods. There are benefits even with a potted plant (laughs) Mm. in your office. We're seeing some benefits, which is really fascinating Mm. to me. So a little bit of nature has some benefits, um, but it looks like there's a dose response curve. So the more nature and the more time, the better you feel. Mm. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller, and I'm talking with Florence Williams, author of the book, The Nature Fix, Why Nature Makes Us Happier, Healthier, and More Creative. How, in this, with the scientists that you talk to, how do scientists think that nature is changing how our bodies work and how our brains work? What is the like mechanism by which we feel better outside or our blood pressure goes down or whatever it is? That's a great question. And I would say there's a a good bit of healthy debate over exactly what's going on. One uh, theory that I like that people talk about a lot is called the attention restoration theory. And basically what it what it suggests is that our frontal cortex, right, that's the frontal part of our brain that's always um, paying attention to tasks that we have to do. It's checking items off our to-do list. It's responding to email. We, we all know that part of our brain because we use it all the time. And, and we don't really give it an, a very much of a break. And so that kind of stresses us out even on a subconscious level when we feel sort of um, grumpy. It's often because the attentional networks in our brain are sort of overworked. I think we can all relate to that feeling. Hmm. And something happens when we go outside, which is that the frontal cortex of our brain seems to quiet down. And you can actually see this on MRI scans. You can see it on some different kinds of EEG scans that now we can take out into the field and you can actually see it happening in real time. And that's because when we're outside in nature, the surroundings are such that our perceptual systems aren't kind of overtaxed. You know, information is coming at us at a kind of slow, natural pace that, frankly, is the pace our brains evolved in, mm-hmm. right? So, oh, there's a bird over there, or there's a bee over here. Oh, a little bit of stress, but oh, but look, there's a sunset, and that makes us feel better. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there's sort of recovery built in and a slower pace built in. Mm-hmm. And that seems to quiet down that, that frontal lobe, and that experience in itself is enough to kind of cheer us up, you know, on some level. It's a comfortable, happy space. Are there other notable medical effects that you feel like are interesting and that maybe warrant more of our attention? In Japan, there's some really interesting studies also looking at people's killer T immune cells. And those studies seem to suggest that after uh, a couple of days of sort of a vacation, for example, uh, near a forest and, and hiking in a forest, that those killer T cells really go up 
And that could be really important for fighting diseases like cancer. So that's one thing. We also see that certain inflammatory cells in our immune system go down. So that's been shown in research uh, actually at the University of California, looking at uh, kids who take a three-day rafting trip. And these are Mm. inner-city kids. They report a 30% decrease in anxiety. And you can actually see these cytokine cells um, also quieting down. There's some research going on with veterans who have post-traumatic stress, showing that they experience less anxiety, less depression, greater feelings of vitality and social bonding, which we also know is associated with positive feelings, uh, also after time in nature. So obviously we live in a world in which already more than half of people on earth uh, live in cities. That's only going up. We're going to hit by some estimates um, by 2050, uh, two thirds of people will live in cities. So people are increasingly, as they have been doing for the past hundred years or more, uh, moving into urban areas. Do you worry, like as we increasingly sort of move on top of each other and build 30-story and 50-story buildings, do you worry that some of the problems that have come with increasing urbanization will be compounded? Yeah, I totally do worry about that. In fact, I was just reading in the paper that a lot of people in Hong Kong are living in these tiny, 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 tiny spaces that they're calling coffin apartments. Oh, my gosh. So you can imagine. And you have to just think, boy, that is not a place where your brain is really going to feel comfortable. That resembles nothing, you know, that we have lived in for the last 99.9% mm. of our existence. Um, we also we know that certain mental health problems are a lot worse in urban areas than they are outside of them. Schizophrenia, depression, anxiety. So I, I think that urban life takes a toll. And the more that we recognize this, I think the more we can bring to how we design these cities, how we design the spaces, how we make a big effort to provide access for all children to go outside and not just the ones who can afford, you know, golf lessons or going to summer camp. Florence Williams is the author of The Nature Fix, Why Nature Makes Us Happier, Healthier, and More Creative. She's also a contributing editor at Outside Magazine. Florence, thank you so much for this. Thank you so much, Kara. It's been fun. If you'd like to learn more about how different people de-stress in nature, visit our website, innovationhub.org. There we've got an article from Florence Williams about a Japanese practice called forest bathing. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show, senior producer Matt Purdy, associate producers Mark Sollinger and Mark Filipino, and engineer Doug Sugertz. We also had production help from Alec Graney and Rowena Lindsay. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. PRI, Public Radio International.